so thank you for the invitation and uh, I'm very happy to be here to to present the the results of this uh, of this project but it's more an opportunity to uh, discuss uh, how as a clinical academic I'm trying to bridge what is the best available evidence to something that can really inform uh, the treatment decision-making process and our uh, patients. Uh, first of all, yes, um, uh, I don't have any conflict of interest. I've never received money from the pharmaceutical industry and I think it's important to say this because in psychiatry and uh, psychopharmacology especially there's a lot of uh, ideology and I think it's important to state that I don't have any uh, conflict of interest on this matter. So this is uh, a master's about evidence synthesis and I think it's good to start with what we consider the, the best in terms of the hierarchy of evidence. So this is what we usually teach our students and the idea is that depending on the specific question, so in this case uh, for instance about therapy which means whether uh, a, a treatment is effective, we all know that level one is randomized controlled trials, evidence from randomized studies, uh, level two is cohort observational studies, uh, cohort studies first and then case control and the idea is also that within level one if we have a systematic review, so a collection of many trials, uh, this is likely better than having an individual study because of the external validity, the generalizability of findings, and also, um, I mean, the more the merrier. So the statistical power, if you do a meta-analysis, is, uh, is much, much more informative. Um, and this is what standard meta-analysis do. So you have a pool of studies comparing, let's say, treatment A versus placebo, and in the end you have a pooled weighted estimate comparing A versus placebo. Uh, if we uh, say that on a specific topic or a specific question, we also have a pool of three different studies comparing A versus B, what standard meta-analysis do is to basically be able to summarize and pull all the evidence A versus placebo in one single estimate, A versus B in one single estimate. But the problem is that as clinicians, basically, this cannot be really informative because we know what is one head-to-head -head comparisons, we know what the estimate between another head-to-head -head comparisons, but we don't have the full picture. So in a nutshell, what we do with the network meta-analysis is in a set of trials comparing A versus placebo and a set of trials comparing A versus B, we use a treatment in common like A to calculate the indirect evidence B versus placebo. This is the idea behind the approach so-called network meta-analysis or multiple treatment uh, meta-analysis. And the reason why it is informative for, for, for clinicians is because if we have a network of experimental uh, interventions, uh, which can be in this case uh, antidepressants, but can be any kind of treatment, 
we can summarize all available evidence into this network. And the graphical representation of the network is also, I think, important. So in this specific situation, the size of the node is proportional to the number of patients randomized to a specific intervention, fluoxetine here. You see many patients randomized to fluoxetine, not so many to bupropion. And the lines represent uh, the number of direct comparisons, so the studies comparing one uh, treatment versus the other, and the width of the line is proportional to the number of trials comparing two treatments. So many studies comparing fluoxetine with sertraline, not so many comparing escitalopram with bupropion. And actually no studies comparing reboxetine with mirtazapine. So if the question is, which is the difference between reboxetine and metazapine, two licensed antidepressants on the market, I carry out a systematic review and the answer is no data. So with this network of treatment, I can calculate the indirect evidence reboxetine metazapine going via a common comparator like, for instance, fluoxetine. So one of the advantages of network meta-analysis is to fill the gaps. But I think that the most important advantage of network meta-analysis is the comparison between direct and indirect evidence. So for a comparison like sertraline versus fluoxetine with many, many trials comparing sertraline and fluoxetine, we have a direct estimate, the solid red line. But using the network, I can also calculate, for instance, via venlafaxine, the indirect evidence, red, green dotted line, and what I can do is to compare the two and check the so-called consistency of the network. Consistency of the network is whether direct and indirect uh, estimates are uh, showing the same results or similar results. The other thing is that I can check the consistency of the estimate certainly in fluoxetine not only via venlafaxine, but I can go via any closed loop within the network, so via citalopram, via fluvoxamine. These are three node loops, but I can also use fluoxetine, acetalopram, paroxetine, and sertraline, four nodes or any kind of number of nodes. Of course, the higher the number of nodes, the less informative is the comparison because I increase the uncertainty around the, the estimate. So, um, in... Uh, this kind of network, I think, which is very well connected. Uh, another important thing to consider is the so-called geometry of the network, because the comparison between direct and indirect, the consistency of the network, can be checked only if I have closed loops. If I don't have closed loops within the network, I cannot check consistency. So the advantages of natural meta-analysis, I can compare interventions which haven't been directly compared in any trial, fill the gaps, and mirtazapine reboxetine. I can, use a I can uh, have a comprehensive use of all available data, direct and indirect, as I showed. I can improve precision, and I'll show you in a bit with the antidepressants meta-analysis how we can improve precision, but basically we add the confidence interval, so they, they, they increase the precision. And I can also rank the treatments using different methods. One of the methods we use to rank the treatments from the estimates of natural meta-analysis is this one. So we estimate for each intervention, which is the probability to be in each position. 
This is a fictional example with only four treatments, just to uh, exemplify the process. But basically, using the estimates that we calculate from the natural meta-analysis, which can calculate for A, we can, sorry, we can estimate for A, which is the probability to be the first, which is 25%, it is 50% for B, it is 25% for C, and zero for D. So can I ask you, the winner is? Exactly. 50% <laughs> probability. The second? Why? 50% to be the second. The third? Why? Yeah. And, and fourth, uh, of course, D, also because it has 75%. And that's exactly the point. So we look not only at the actual probability to be in each position, but also what we call the cumulative probability. So the probability to be among the best three is 75% for A, 100% for B, 100% for C, only 25% for D. And this is very important because one of the most common mistakes in natural meta-analysis is to consider only the probability to be in a specific position. And for treatment with a lot of uncertainty, you have huge probability to be the first, huge probability to be the last. So if you look only at the probability to be in one position, you don't really understand which is the ranking of a treatment. And we have a great example. There was a paper published in the BMJ about pharmacological treatment of GAD, the uh, generalized anxiety disorder, and they used the ranking in the wrong way, probability to be the best, so-called, and they ranked fluoxetine as the best treatment, and uh, of course it was the wrong approach. We, we wrote a letter to the BMJ, they didn't want to publish our reanalysis, and I was very happy now that a couple of weeks ago, in the Lancet, you find a natural meta-analysis about GAD done properly. Okay, so it's a very common mistake. Uh, so this is, uh, sorry for this theoretical background, but it's just to be sure we are on the same page. So now the story about the, the, the antidepressants. We started in 2009 publishing this uh, paper in The Lancet, which was the first, at that time we called it multiple treatments meta-analysis, the first natural meta-analysis in psychiatry. And at that time, I was uh, finishing my residency in psychiatry. And one of the key questions, I was in Italy. Uh, I'm Italian, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure you can pick up my terrible English and accent. Anyway, um, I was uh, finishing my res residency. And one of the key questions was for patients we uh, used to uh, see in our um, clinics with the patient with depression was, which is the antidepressant to prescribe to these patients. And um, asking my senior colleagues, they said, well, usually the last one, the last marketed antidepressant is the best because they are all the same in terms of efficacy, slightly different in terms of acceptability, but the newest is probably the best because they have less sexual dysfunction or uh, they are better tolerated. I didn't buy the argument. I still was in favor of an evidence-based approach. So what we did was to carry out this systematic review, which is actually a systematic review of 12 systematic reviews. And the clinical question was very clear to me. So I have a patient in front of me. The patient is depressed, and the patient has agreed to start a pharmacological treatment. Okay? So, which is, if any, the best treatment for this patient. So for this reason, what we looked at was 
only second generation antidepressants because according to the guidelines we should prescribe a second generation antidepressant. We did not include placebo because the question was not whether antidepressants work, the question was which is because we already decided to prescribe an antidepressant and of course because the patient was depressed the outcome was acute efficacy and acceptability of these treatments. So the project was called uh, MANGA. We included 117 randomized controlled trial, 26,000 participants, about 12 drugs. And uh, I think names are important. Names are important because, especially in network meta-analysis, uh, you are working with a multidisciplinary team and there's a lot of email exchange, so it's good to have a title like MANGA, Meta-Analysis of New Generation Antidepressants. Uh, as I said, we included only active drugs, no placebo, no older comparator because according to guidelines, second generation antidepressants should be preferred. And it was the first natural meta-analysis, so we decided to keep it simple. But we wanted to look at two primary outcomes which were clinically informative. One was response, so after eight weeks of treatments, how many patients respond, 50% reduction on a rating scale, which is pretty standard measure. Second was, at eight weeks, how many patients are still on treatment, so-called acceptability, dropout rate. Of course, uh, we had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of controversy around this meta-analysis because for the first time we proved that there are differences between antidepressants, uh, but a lot of criticism was about the exclusion of all comparators, the exclusion of placebo, because there's a lot of debate in the literature whether antidepressants really work. So after a few years, actually we started in 2011, 2012, and we published a paper six years after in 2018, so it took a long, long time to do Griselda. Group of researchers investigating specific efficacy of individual drugs for acute depression. It's, it's a long title, but it's a very nice story about Griselda. I don't know if you are familiar. She's a fantastic woman uh, that basically, uh, when I started the project, I knew it was something very long, uh, and we uh, basically what we needed was, uh, was a lot of determination, endurance and uh, will to fight against all the difficult things we uh, may have encountered or during, during, during the process. And Griselda is a lady that was basically, uh, it's a difficult story today because she had everything she should not have had like uh, she was treated badly by the husband and uh, basically she was a slave of her husband, treated poorly and neglected and in the end the, uh, the husband to punish her for nothing because she didn't do anything wrong, she, he pretended that he was marrying their daughter and she was asked to be the witness at the marriage, so, something terrible. But in the end, all this was a sort of um, test of the husband to test how good and how strong she was. So a terrible story, nice, happy uh, ending. But the very reason why uh, I like the story of Griselda is not only because it's true that women are much better than men, but also because if you ask, when I present this story to British people, they. No, they say, well, I know Griselda, it's Chaucer. 
It's a novel a story um, narrated by Chaucer in his Canterbury Tales. But that's where British people are wrong, because it's Italian. So Chaucer decided to steal the story from Boccaccio. And in this specific period of Brexit, I'm so proud to keep saying that it's actually Italy and not UK. Anyway, it's a personal revenge, because <laughs> last night I was very, very worried about the parliament. Okay, so uh, for Griselda, we had to rethink the project. And the first question was, do antidepressants work for depression? So, are they an effective treatment for depression? First question. If yes, which is, if any, the best treatment? So this is why in Griselda we have placebo. We included also not only the two previous outcomes, but we also included continuous outcomes. We wanted to expand the number of drugs, so not only the newer or the newest antidepressants on the market, but also all the comparators. And to be methodologically sound, we decided to include antidepressants, which are in the WHO essential list of medicine, to be uh, informative globally. Of course, we uh, were very careful about the search strategy, including publish and publish, and also all the regulatory stuff about drugs. And in the end, we have 21 active treatments and placebo. 50, 522 double-blind randomized controlled trials, less than uh, 120,000 participants. Just to give you an idea, this is the largest natural meta-analysis in medicine. So as I said, rationale is long-lasting debate about efficacy of antidepressants. Are there really differences between <coughs> these individual drugs? So we focused again on the acute treatment of adults with unipolar major depressive disorder. As you know, we need to have a specific question to answer. We have parallel projects about long-term effects or treatment-resistant depression, but this paper is only about the acute treatment of adults with unipolar depressive disorder. The reason why we, especially for natural meta-analysis, we need to focus is because of an assumption we do with natural meta-analysis, which is called transitivity. So when we have the network, and this is a good example, if we have a network of treatment, to be able to do a network meta-analysis, the assumption of transitivity is crucial because basically we assume that each patient included in each of the treatment could be in theory randomized to any of the other treatments. So that's the transitivity which allows us to use the indirect comparison to compare to interventions which haven't been compared. And the problem, uh, I mean, how we violate transitivity is also important, not only in terms of how we deliver the treatment, for instance, we include placebo, but we cannot have placebo as an injection compared to placebo as a tablet, because especially for depression or pain, the way you, you administer placebo can have an effect on the outcome. And the other important thing, especially in the field of antidepressants, is the effect of the drugs should be stable over time. Because if you compare an old, these are only uh, new drugs, but for old comparisons like amitriptyline, if you compare a drug with placebo, and in the 70s the uh, response rate to placebo was 20%, and you compare a citalopram with placebo in 2000, and the response rate of placebo is 40%, 
this is a violation of transitivity because you lump together placebo assuming that we have the same effect modifiers but this is different. So the first thing we had to do was to be sure that we were comparing similar with similar and um, that the transitivity assum assumption would uh, be confirmed. So we uh, I'll go back to this in a moment. So all licensed second-generation antidepressants, not only in Europe, for instance in Japan, they don't have Velnafaxin, but they have Milnasipran, so this is why Milnasipran is in the list. We have four reference, first-generation antidepressants and placebo. This is the paper, uh, which is open access, which means that you have to pay a lot to the Lancet, $5,000. It's amazing. But it's open access also uh, the uh, data set. So all the data we analyze, six years of work, are freely available on the website in order to incentivize people to replicate the analysis and find any mistakes we may have made. So, uh, as I said, only double-blind randomized controlled trials, published and unpublished, antidepressants as monotherapy, uh, oral, adults with a primary diagnosis of MDD, major depressive disorder. We use standardized criteria, for instance, for this reason we had to exclude a lot of Chinese studies, and we also <coughs> consider, uh, sorry, excluded people who had depression with cancer or uh, like uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or these kind of co medical comorbidities. The search is up to January 2016 because it took us about a year and um, a half to analyze the data and find the right approach. And we uh, searched manually all the international trial registries, the websites of regulatory agencies, and also we contacted all the study authors. So this is why it took us a lot of time. This is the list of 21 drugs. Up to here is the list of new generation antidepressants from agomeratine to vortioxetine in alphabetical order. And these are the four um, reference drugs, amitriptyline and chromipamine among the TCAs, trazodone and nefazodone because they are antidepressants with a specific side effect profile. For instance, trazodone is often used by GPs because of the um, side effect profile in terms of uh, insomnia. As I said, we excluded bipolar, psychotic, depression, treatment-resistant depression, serious concomitant illness. And this is the list of outcomes, the two historical one, just to be sure we could compare the results of 2018 with 2009, because things, as we know, can change in evidence-based medicine. But we added continuous outcome, change on symptoms, we added remission to response, and also not only dropouts, all-cause dropouts, but also dropouts due to adverse events. Because this is a review to inform clinical practice, we included data only within the therapeutic range of the antidepressants. We excluded low dose or too high dose. In terms of statistical analysis, of course, we use odds ratio and standardized mean differences because we have both continuous and dichotomous outcomes. Uh, we look at the heterogeneity. Of course, the transitivity assumption was evaluated looking at the distribution of the clinical and methodological variables that could affect, uh, uh, could, I mean, be effect modifiers. But transitivity, we cannot test transitivity with a statistical method. So this is why 
all the discussion is mainly about the clinical issues that may have an effect as effect modifier. While consistency, we have quite robust methods to check consistency and we use both the local method and the global method. I'm very proud of this because in the review team I wanted three statisticians to analyze the data independently using three different softwares, just to be sure that the results were consistent, consistent independently of the way or the statistical software you analyze them. And of course for the certainty of evidence we use the standard which is now uh, grade. We took the opportunity also to uh, carry out subgroup and sensitivity analysis because, for instance, we know that study year can be an effect modifier. Sponsorship is a big issue in psychiatry, especially in antidepressants literature, severity of baseline, the dosing schedule, and also the small study effect, which is somehow a proxy of um, publication bias. And the novelty effect, because the same drug when it's the experimental drug tend to be more effective than when the same drug is the comparator, which is a strange thing which is not justified by the biology. So we look also for the novelty effect. And in terms of sensitivity analysis, because we imputed response rate from the continuous data, we excluded studies which did not report a response rate. Of course, we excluded studies that did not use all accepted doses in all arms, so not only the, the arms but all the study, the unpublished data. And yes, because we look for unpublished data systematically, so if the same study reported published and unpublished data, we gave preference to the unpublished data assuming they are more reliable. So we included only studies which provided also unpublished data and, and so on. So this is the, <coughs> the flow chart. We started from around 30,000 references and from this side is the electronic data sets. We, had, uh, we included about 420 studies from the electronic data sets, uh, databases but we found 86 unpublished studies and also by a personal communication or hand searching of reference list additional 15 randomized controlled trials so in the end the 522 are uh, in large majority from electronic databases but a significant proportion of the data is unpublished as expected these information I think is also important. We reported the number of studies per drug compared to placebo or another active comparator and of course drugs like fluoxetine or paroxetine they have more than 110 trials. Most recent drug like uh, desvenlafaxine or uh, levomilnaciprine they have only less than 10 studies and that's expected. However the, the bottom line message is that the amount of evidence is different across different drugs. These are the two networks, uh, network, network plots for efficacy and acceptability. Can I ask you what you think about the shape? I, I, I told you that the shape of the network is very important to, to gather some information or to guide the interpretation of the results. So, what do you think about this too? So the colors are different, I, I know, but <laughs> exactly. That's 
that's one of the important things. So the shape of the network is basically identical. The only difference, if you can see, is that between bupropion and amitriptyline, we don't have studies reporting efficacy. We have one study reporting data about acceptability. But apart from this and another couple of examples, the same studies reported data about response and dropouts, which is good for us because the initial assumption was the primary outcome is a combination of response and dropouts because we want to know whether after eight weeks people responded and whether they are still on uh, treatment, which is a proxy of acceptability and uh, tolerability as well. So the shape of the network is almost identical. And the other thing which is important from a methodological point of view is that in the end the network uh, is very well connected. So we have a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the uh, literature in psychiatry, but the great majority of trials are placebo-controlled. We did a natural meta-analysis about acute mania, published in The Lancet a few years ago. And the shape of the network is called star-shaped network, because you have placebo in the middle, a lot of comparison with placebo, but only a few head-to-head. -head. It's like, like a star. So this is a very well-connected network, which means for us we can check inconsistency. So we have more, more, uh, the results are much more robust. Sorry. So let's ask the first question. So whether antidepressants work. So the comparison here is drug versus placebo. I use the standard forest plot, but these are network meta-analysis data. Okay, so including both direct and indirect. And on the right favors drug, on the left favors placebo. As you can see here, all the drugs are statistically significantly better than placebo. Everything is on the right. And also there are some differences between, for instance, the top one, amitriptyline, and the least effective, reboxetine. This is material difference because if you look at the confidence interval, they do not overlap. So in the end, we have completely different treatments in terms of efficacy versus placebo. But all antidepressants are statistically significantly better than placebo in terms of efficacy. In terms of acceptability, the great majority of drugs are not statistically significantly different in terms of dropout rate, all-cause dropout. A couple like agomelatine and fluoxetine are statistically significantly better. Clomipramine significantly, statistically significantly worse in terms of acceptability than placebo. But if you look at the confidence interval, it's very close to the <coughs> line of no difference. So the figure of the paper is combining efficacy and acceptability. Of course, in order to make it visually like this, I had to swap. So you can see here that the confidence interval and the estimates are the other way around. So it's a bit complicated. So this is from 0.5 to 2.5. This is the other way around. But the, the, because my paper was for clinicians, you give the message on the right favors drug, on the left favors placebo. Okay. <clears throat> the big question is, whether these differences translate into something which is clinically meaningful, uh, but this is uh, the second part of the presentation. So, reboxetine is the least effective. Can we try to combine the two outcomes in one graph? 
So this is what we did. So we have efficacy here, it's the same data, same results. So efficacy on the x-axis, one is in uh, the, the, the references reboxetin, these are all the other data, and this is placebo. So in terms of efficacy, so this is the line of no difference, antidepressants are better than placebo. And this is acceptability, this is the line of no difference. You can see that the great majority of antidepressants are similar to placebo, a few are less acceptable. But this is the graph if we use all studies. What happens if we exclude placebo-controlled trials? If you exclude placebo-controlled trials, keep these as a reference, look at what happens. So this is with placebo, if we exclude all placebo-controlled trials, so we have only head-to-head -head trials, this is the figure. So, and reboxetin is in the same place, it's always the reference. So basically, if you include placebo in the network, all the differences between antidepressants shrink. So the problem is to interpret this. Of course, we reported the figure of the paper is this one, so we had all studies head-to-head, -head, but because we, want, we need to interpret the data from a clinical point of view, which is the truth. Uh, of course, I don't know, I'm just uh, trying to suggest some interpretation. So what we did was to analyze the question specifically, and the paper is now published in the Journal of Clinical uh, Epidemiology, sorry, International Journal of Epidemiology. So we look at the impact on, of placebo arms uh, on the outcomes of antidepressant trials, and the outcomes are efficacy, all-cause dropout, and dropouts due to adverse events. <coughs> so what we did was to, as an outcome, look at the probability of being allocated to placebo, the pi, as dichotomous, yes or no, trichotomous, 0% is head-to-head, 50% is 2-1 placebo-controlled trial, anything in between is multi-arm placebo-controlled trial, or as a continuous variable. Of course, because we had to have the same drug tested in placebo and in head-to-head -head alone, the number of studies is less than the original number of 522, and so on. We, in the end, included 700 and something arms. So this is for response. And this is the overall results. So the light blue is placebo-controlled, two-arm placebo-controlled trial. The very dark blue, almost black, let's say, is head-to-head -head trials. And in the middle is multi-arm placebo-controlled. Okay? So if you look at the whole... Can I touch this? Or? Yeah. Okay. So if you look at the overall results being in a two-arm placebo-controlled trial, so drug versus placebo, response rate is less than being in a head-to-head -head trial without placebo. First finding. But if you look at the specific individual drugs, this pattern is quite typical for many of these drugs, escitalopram, citalopram, fortioxetine, blah, 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 mirtazapine. But it's completely different for drugs like amitriptyline. So in amitriptyline trial, being in a placebo-controlled amitriptyline versus placebo trial, 
the response rate is much higher than being in amitriptyline versus an active drug without placebo. So the opposite. Uh, so they are ordered, I think, from here to here is the order with the black, so the probability of receiving so the head-to-head uh, -head trials. And this is the all overall. It's not alphabetical order. If you look at the all-cause dropouts, you can see that being in a placebo-controlled trial to ARM, you have a higher probability of dropping out than being in head-to-head. -head. And again, there are differences between individual drugs. If you look at dropouts due to side effects, there's no difference. So in the end, I think this is the most important figure of the paper. If you plot, again, efficacy, Y, and dropout in the X axis, and uh, the black dots are the head-to-head uh, -head trials, and the blue dots are the placebo-controlled trials, for the same drug, for the same drug, being in a head-to-head -head trial, you have a higher probability to respond, less probability to drop out than being in a placebo-controlled trial for the same drug. So it's not about the drug, it's about the study design. So in the paper we suggest possible explanations and these are the two extremes. One is, of course, in two-arm placebo-controlled trial versus head-to-head, -head, we can measure the response to the drug, but of course we cannot measure the contextual response, what we, what we call the placebo response, because we cannot measure this in a head-to-head -head trial, because there's no placebo. Okay? So the only way to understand whether the difference between the two is related to this placebo effect or sort of contextual response would be to cheat to patients. Would be to run a placebo-controlled trial, which is actually a head-to-head, -head, and vice versa. Which is not ethical, well, I thought it was not ethical until I went to Australia to present this data to uh, a group of colleagues who are working on pain, and they are doing this kind of trials. Mm -hmm. So they cheat to patients. They say this is a placebo-controlled trial. So ethically, I think it's more difficult because, you know, with depression we have the issues about suicide and or self-harming, so it's not an easy thing to do. But I, I think this is the only way to methodologically sound answer the clinical question. So we are working on, on this. But there's another thing about antidepressant trials. I don't know how familiar you are with the literature. But if this is the typical trajectory in a trial, so this is the change in symptoms over time. Over eight weeks, you start with the same severity. And after eight weeks, people randomized to placebo respond less than people randomized to the highest dose of the drug. This is the lower dose of the drug, and this is the active comparator. Okay, this is a typical situation. But because there's, uh, sorry, and at the end, the difference between placebo and the drug is five points on the MADRAS, which is a standardized rating scale to measure depressive symptoms. But because there's placebo, and we know that people in placebo-controlled trials tend to drop out early, what happens is that they drop out, let's say, after one week. And 
in order not to miss this information, what researchers and trialists do is to take the last observation and they carry forward this until the end of the study. Because, as I said, in placebo-controlled trials, also people randomized to the drug drop out early. So they carry out the last observation, and in the end, the difference they measure is one instead of five. Do you know how many of the... So I know in, in psychiatry we are far behind other fields of medicine, uh, because I know there are very, very, uh, I mean, more sophisticated measure methods to uh, basically tackle the issue of missing data. But do you know how many studies in the uh, sample of Griselda, so out of 522, use the LOCF method to impute for missing data? 95. So the thing is, this may be something which bias the results. So in the end, all this is why the league table, which reports response rate and dropout rate in one table, is based on the head-to-head -head and not on the placebo-controlled trials. So these are the drugs in alphabetical order, and the idea is to be able to compare the column defining versus the row defining, and be able to estimate the head-to-head. -head. So if we have fluoxetine versus sertraline, sertraline is better than fluoxetine, escitalopram is better than riboxetine, uh, I don't know, citalopram is worse than escitalopram, and so on. So there are highlighted and bold statistically significant results, and for efficacy, and the same for acceptability. I will uh, move ahead. We can go back to the results if you want. Limitation. There are many limitations of this study. Of course, we may have missed studies, but there's no evidence of publication bias. I didn't mention the quality according to grade was moderate to low or very low. So there's a big debate in terms of how good are these results, but at the same time, this is the best evidence we have. We didn't do any cost-effectiveness analysis because we just wanted to inform uh, the, the globe. <laughs> so in order to do the cost-effectiveness analysis, you need to use data in individual countries. This is an ongoing project. Of course, we may have missed some potentially important effect modifiers. And of course, the number of outcomes reported here is limited. We are now um, finalizing the manuscript about adverse events, but it took us about another year to develop the methodology to analyze the adverse events in uh, the network meta-analysis. But I think this is the main problem, and this is where the controversy was. In the end, these are data which are aggregate, so it's not <clears throat> we're still not able to personalize treatment in depression. Even though it's much better to have a league table like this, we are still talking about averages. <clears throat> so this is why we need to move a step forward. And can we use natural meta-analysis to personalize treatment depression? Of course, I think the answer is yes. This is a paper we published a few months ago in Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics. And this is a sort of proof of concept, whether we can predict treatment outcome using, uh, I mean, uh, clinical baseline and demographic characteristics of patients. So for this specific project, which is about depression, we used an individual patient data natural meta-analysis, which investigated the use of antidepressants alone versus psychotherapy alone versus the combination uh, in chronic depression. We, we decided to choose this example because 
we did a systematic review, we had only four studies, and we managed to have the individual data of all the studies, and because it's four studies with three nodes, we have a good representation of the evidence to test the method. But basically, what we did uh, was, depending on the demographic characteristic of this patient, so being female with a severe depression, severe anxiety, very young, 31, no family history of depression, short duration of symptoms. The trajectory of symptoms, how the symptoms change over 12 weeks for treatment A, B and C, it's clear, because this is a change, that C is the best option for Helen. But for a man, so being men, less severe depression, severe anxiety, slightly older, family history of depression, a longer duration of symptoms, actually, option B is the best treatment. So with individual patient data, we can show the patient which is the trajectory, how fast is the outcome, positive outcome to, 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 to be, and also which is the best treatment. But this is only part of the project. The other big important issue is to incorporate patient preferences because we have a lot of adverse events and we know that some people can be, um, the, uh, I mean, the burden of uh, weight gain can be more for me or sexual dysfunction or headache or tremor. So the idea is to incorporate this in a treatment algorithm and the treatment choice can inform really the ranking of treatment. So this is the, how can I say, the template and how the, the screen of the algorithm. So I mentioned Nick and this is his situation, but if the preference of Nick is, these are sliding bars, so he doesn't want sedation, doesn't want weight gain, and he's fine in terms of cardiac risk, so the QTC prolongation is not an issue for him, this is the ranking of the treatment. But for a, another male with the same characteristics, same age, same severity of depression, same anxiety, same uh, family history, but with different preferences. So he doesn't want nausea, he doesn't want tremor, and he has a problem in terms of QTC prolongation. The ranking is completely different. So this is where we, are, we should go, and this is my NIHR Research Professorship project, be able to analyze the individual patient data from the trials I showed, combine with the observational data from real-world patients, and incorporate patient preferences into this algorithm. Uh, I, I, you are familiar with the methods, but I'm editor of this journal, evidence-based mental health, and we published this paper, of course, open access, so you can find all the things I mentioned about uh, natural meta-analysis there, and this is the promotional bit. We have this course in Oxford, because I, I strongly believe that clinicians and clinical researchers should be aware uh, uh, of natural meta-analysis, but especially critically appraise uh, this kind of very trendy uh, article in the scientific literature, but often very biased and very rubbish. Thank you.